Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome to Trending. Interesting topics on the docket for today. We're going to dive into the psychological research that backs what is often not discussed today. Uh, how important moms are, how important moms being present with their children, a huge debate, and one that, as faithful Catholics, we're supposed to have, because as we know, the proper orientation of marriage is toward the procreation and education of children. That's what uh, we learn in formation for Christian marriage, that sacrament that we're oriented not toward the Shangri-La of the two individuals, but that gift of love between the two are meant to be oriented toward raising children, having children. So what does that look like? What is a proper way to do that? And that is a conversation we're called to have. And I'm always fascinated by how uh, faith and science are so compatible with one another. And even when we try to deny, to deny, to deny the truth of the matter, uh, the truth always comes out, even in a lot of the psychological data. Joining me today is Erica Komazar. She's a clinical social worker, a psychoanalyst, and a parent's guide expert. She wrote a fantastic book. We'll post a link to it. It's called Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. And I'll argue and beyond because that's what all the data shows. And she's talking about essentially how the psychological community has in many ways rejected um, talking about the true research out there with regard to the need of the development of the child with regard to his and her parents. So we're going to talk about the important role of mom today and the important role of fathers as well and what moms and dads can do in the lives of their children. You may not have children. That's okay. I love to learn about parenting before I was ever even a parent. It's fascinating to learn about childhood psychology and really kind of this these early years of our own lives and how uh, fundamental connections and relationships influence how we live our lives. So without further ado, Erica Komazar is my guest today. Erica, I'm so excited to talk to you about the psychological research that backs the need for mothers to be present um, to our children today. Oh, thank you for having me. So let's get into some of, I think, some of the shocking information that's out there that is often um, stymied in our culture, which, in fact, you uh, were in some ways canceled for sharing the news in this book, but you stood by it because the research out there is so strong for the importance of mothers. So share a little bit about that with us. Well, I mean, I wrote a book about the fact that mothers are not just emotionally necessary for infants and toddlers. Um, but they are also biologically necessary. And all of the neuroscience and epigenetics and attachment research um, over the last, you know, 50 years proves that mothers are not just emotionally necessary, but biologically necessary as well. Um, and the 90s was what we called the decade of, of the brain. So all of the neuroscience research was geared towards right social emotional brain development, um, which is 
you know, basically the basis of a child's personality is in the right brain. Um, so many things are in the right brain. The ability to regulate one's emotions, to cope with stress in life, to have good judgment, to have executive functioning. Um, these are all parts of the right brain development. So yes, mothers are in fact, um, pr as primary attachment figures are critical to the neurological and emotional development of children in the first thousand days. So first thousand days equate to the first three years. That's what your book focuses on. Now, you're not saying that yeah. moms aren't critically important after that, but this is the specific time frame uh, in your research for this particular book that you focused on. And it's a time, I think, of a lot of controversy. Uh, we live in a culture where there's a lot of pressure on women um, to have the education, have the career. And then once you have the career, if babies come along, well, you spent all these years in education, you should stay back in that career force that you've been gearing yourself up toward to be a quote unquote contributing member of society, but also to achieve your goals. And so there's this tug and pull in society where many people say, well, the baby doesn't know the difference. It doesn't matter. You know, what's important is the baby has a mom and that's what matters. And I think there's a lot of confusion with regard to, well, let's set aside the debate about what mom is up to, about working versus non-working, and let's just talk about what that baby needs. So you mentioned a lot of the brain science, from neuroscience, from uh, connection and development. What are, would you say, some of the most compelling things in the research uh, that are inspiring for women to see the importance of our role as women with our children at home? Well, what, what we know is that babies are born much more fragile than we give them credit. We, we actually project onto very young babies that they're resilient at a very young age. Um, we, we project onto them that they're as resilient as we are as adults. And in fact, they're not. They're incredibly fragile neurologically and they're incredibly dependent. And, and in that critical period of brain development of zero to three, the environment um, is, is critical for that baby's brain development, meaning whether the environment is, feels safe and calm or whether that environment feels stressful and is, is full of adversity. So um, what we're trying to do is control for stress when we stay with our babies in those first three years, when we uh, regulate their emotions or soothe them uh, when they're in distress from moment to moment. We're basically keeping their their stress levels very low. We're keeping their stress regulating system uh, in, in kind of the off position. Uh, we're acting as an, an external regulator of stress for them. So we can keep the stress to a minimum so their brains can develop in the proper way. Um, we know today that many, many babies are born um, more than we've ever known before with actually a genetic uh, precursor to a lot of the mental illness that we see today. It's called um, a short allele on the serotonin receptor. It's, um, it means that there are many babies who are even more fragile, even more sensitive than the average baby. Those babies tend to be harder to soothe. Those babies tend to be clingier. Those babies tend to not want to sleep as much and want to be with us more. They tend to be just much more um, sensitive to any environmental noise or touch or, you know, we call those sensitive babies. And more babies are being born with sensitivity to stress in the environment than we have ever seen before. 
and those babies in the research, um, if given the emotional and physical presence of a sensitive, empathic, nurturing mother in the first three years, it neutralizes the expression of that gene so those babies have as good a chance of developing in a healthy manner mentally as the babies born without that sensitivity. But what we know is that if you ignore that sensitivity in all babies, but particularly in these babies who are, as I said, more sensitive babies, and if you have one, you know you have one. Sometimes the pediatricians call it colic. Um, it's not colic. Every baby has, uh, has a, an immature digestive system, so every baby has colic. Um, it is, it is it is neurological sensitivity to stress. Um, and if you look at other um, parts of the world, mothers physically carry babies on their bodies for the first year. They literally physically carry them on their bodies. And those babies don't cry. There was a researcher named Judy Mesman who went around the world and interviewed mothers and observe mothering behaviors to see if mothering behaviors were culturally relative or universal. And what she found is that they were universal and that in most parts of the world, other than the Western world, where we, you know, leave our babies at six weeks to go back to work, throw them into group care, overwhelming, overstimulating group care, daycare. You know, she said it's like crazy making for babies because babies come out of the womb incredibly fragile, needing to be physically carried on their mother's bodies to keep their stress levels very low so they can incrementally be exposed to those stress levels. I remember seeing a beautiful uh, image not long after I had had my baby. Someone sent it to me as I was in the throes of my first daughter. And, you know, you know that you're that child's everything. That's part of why being a new parent or a parent to begin with of young children is so exhausting because you are giving so much to them because what this photo talked about was that the baby's identity is completely wrapped up in the mother's identity. Uh, and that is how they know themselves. That is how they know that they are safe. And I love that you refer to baby wearing in other countries. And really, historically, that's how babies, especially in the first couple of years, were raised. They were on their moms. The moms continued to help, um, you know, care for the family and do the things that occur around the land and the home that those babies were on them for the sake of protection, for the sake of nourishment. It was very practical, but that practicality pointed to something very simple in the development of a child that a baby needs to be right there present with the mom. And so I really appreciate where you point to that connection uh, that seems sometimes historic and maybe someone might even argue primitive in a developed 21st century mindset. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if you really think about the fact that um, babies don't have the ability to regulate emotions, they don't. They're not born with the ability to regulate emotions. And so they only learn that from contact with their primary attachment figure. That's how they learn it. So when we put them in another room as soon as they're born, when we you know, put them into daycare, when we spend long hours away from them, they're not learning how to regulate their emotions. And it is really what is happening today. People are seeing this incredible epidemic of mental illness in children and adolescents and saying, what has gone wrong? And I would say the foundation of what has gone wrong is we are not raising our children. We are not raising our children. 
Mm. And this ties in many ways to the identity crisis that many young people are having between the conversation with regard to mental health, the, mm. the conversation with identity. Uh, we have this lack of, hey, here's mom, and this is mom nourishing and nurturing and present and seeing. Uh, for little girls, this is my mom. I'm just like mom. And for little boys, there's that natural development in the psychology of the child and what has been known historically in cultures where you know the little boy, after a handful of years, starts to have a level of detachment from mom because he has a biological difference in his body. And I know you, uh, being Jewish in particular, you know, there's a, the bar mitzvah that's a huge part of the development of a young boy, his coming into his manhood, that separation in a certain respect. And I really do think all of this comes back to that childhood psychology of fundamental three years to develop into those later years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Let's talk even a little bit about baby massage. I was actually, so I just had my second daughter uh, Mm -hmm. and she's about 10 weeks old and I'm taking this baby massage class and kind of infant bonding. I'm learning from an occupational therapist, all kinds of neat things about childhood development. But she was sharing something really fascinating to me that reminded me of this conversation today. And I've not had the opportunity to open the research myself. You're probably aware of it, but how there was an orphanage in India where the people who were caring for these babies were they were massaging them every day. And and that infant massage, how that physical contact, that presence with people, even though the mother wasn't there, was so profound in the development of the child and how this is something today that is being taught to moms to engage with their children. And historically, it used to be something that was passed down generation to generation for engagement and stimulation of the child's senses since physical touch is that first sense that the baby so importantly needs in their development. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little to that? Well, so we know that physical touch releases oxytocin. And so oxytocin is a neurotransmitter. It's sometimes euphemistically called the love hormone. And so we need that because oxytocin has an inverse connection to to cortisol, which is the stress hormone. So the more oxytocin in our bodies and our brains, the less of the stress hormone is there. It's sort of in the more stress hormone, the less oxytocin. So when we touch a baby, when we hug each other, even as adults, we are releasing oxytocin, which is a a protector, a buffer for stress. So yes, in fact, it is wonderful to touch babies. Um, There's also research, you know, the very famous research by um, Michael Meany and uh, a bunch of other researchers along with Michael Meany that when mothers, and we're talking about any mammals, but he did it with a certain type of mammal, when uh, mammals, and we're, and we're nothing more than mammals, licked and groomed their pups during the first 10 days of life, it decreased uh, the cortisol in that, baby's, um, in that baby's body, in that pup's body, and it helped them to develop a stress-regulating system. And it, in addition to that, it also those pups who were licked and groomed passed down to their pups the ability to lick and groom. And the ones who were not licked and groomed um, had higher stress levels, had less ability to regulate stress and and adversity in the future, but also didn't pass down uh, through expression, um, you know, uh, generational expression, didn't pass down the ability to lick and groom their pups. 
It's fascinating because that reminds me of the what used to kind of just be a trend and it's integrated into the medical community of uh, kangarooing, right? Skin-to-skin contact and how important mm-hmm. that is. Mm-hmm. I ended up having yep. a baby who was in the NICU in January. We were there for five days. And it was fascinating to see just the progress that occurs when you really do take the time to engage in that skin-to-skin contact for that emotional yep. and psychological stability, which leads to physical healing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, skin to skin contact is part of um, attachment security. So we know that there are a number of cues that cue babies to feel safe, to trigger oxytocin in the babies as well as the mothers. And one of those very important ones is skin to skin contact. Uh, so is eye contact. So is the tone of your voice. Um, you know, so so are a number of things. But skin to skin contact is definitely the one of the most important cues uh, for safety and attachment security in a baby. It's so fascinating how important the stimulation of all of those senses for the baby by the mother is fundamental. Mm -hmm. You just mentioned, you know, touch, you mentioned uh, vision, you mentioned voice. Can you speak for a moment to the other senses as well and how important moms are in developing those? Well, even smell. I mean, mothers, babies come out of their mm-hmm. mother's wombs knowing their, how their mothers smell. Um, and they can smell their mother in the room with their eyes closed. I mean, they, they know their mother's smell. I mean, so between, between all of our senses tie us to our, to our mother's smell. Um, the, when we lay our eyes on our mothers, um, we, you know, we never, t- as a baby, we never take our eyes off our mothers. Our, our eyes go where our mothers go. Um, and the saddest thing for me is when babies seek their mothers' faces, seek their mothers' eyes, and mothers are oblivious to the fact that babies need eye contact with them. Mothers go about their business or they turn the strollers the wrong way. And they just have no sense of the fact that that baby has no language yet. And the language is nonverbal language. And the eye contact is one of the very deep ways that that baby connects with the mother, just like touch. And tone of voice. So one of the ways that, as a therapist, we diagnose postpartum depression is when mothers talk in an adult-like fashion to their babies. Um, we know that motherese talking to babies through that high pitch that mothers do with babies. Oh, sweet. And, you know, strangers on the street will do it too. You know, if they see a baby, they'll go, oh, what a cute baby. Oh, my goodness. How old is she? It's called motherese. And it's very important for attachment. Um, it, it stimulates a part of the baby's brain that helps the baby to attach to the mother. And so we know that when mothers are very flat or they talk in a very adult-like way, and there was this whole movement uh, as a therapist. I used to have mothers come into my office and say, well, I've decided I'm going to talk to my baby like my baby is an adult. I'm not going to talk down to my baby like my baby's a baby. And I say to them, but your baby is a baby. And in fact, that baby (laughs) needs you not to talk to them like an adult, but to actually go into that lilting way of talking because it stimulates a part of their brain and makes them feel connected to you. 
That's Erica Komazar, my guest today. She's a clinical social worker, a psychoanalyst, and a parent guidance expert. She wrote the book, Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters, giving incredible data and information for parents about the important role we play in being present. Uh, one of the greatest challenges I know uh, up against what we're saying about the important role of motherhood is the pressure on mothers to be outside of the home. But I think sometimes in having these conversations about how important we are as women, there's a lot of sacrifice that can go into it. Uh, to being present. It's a challenge. I know this is always the most controversial topic of late that we've discussed, but I think this is part of the antidote in the pro-abortion culture we live in of seeing how important we are as women, as mothers, and that gift given to children and their emotional and psychological stability long-term. Again, my guest today is Erica Komazar. We're taking your questions as well. If you have a question, number is 888-914-9149. We're going to talk a little later about the father's role and the importance in the family especially in the engagement with the children. Uh, so stay with me as we're going to come back discussing that. But pick up that book, Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. You can find Erica Komazar at ericacomazar.com. That's E-R-I-C-A, Komazar, spelled K-O-M-I-S-A-R.com. I'll be right back. Ask your question, 888-914-9149. Coming back discussing the important role of fathers and what fathers offer a child that mothers don't. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Welcome back to Trending. It's great to be with you. My guest today is Erica Komazar. Erica Komazar is a clinical social worker, a psychoanalyst, and a parent's guidance expert. She wrote the book, Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. Uh, my guest today is really drilling down on the importance of moms, and we're going to talk about dads, your important role, and what you can do in your family. Before we go there, we're also taking your questions. Number is 888-914-9149. Nicole's in St. Paul. Nicole, what is your question today for Erica? Hi. Hi, Nicole. We can hear you. Can go you ahead and okay? ask your question. Yes. Oh, great. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having um, my question through. I'm not a child care provider, and I was a preschool teacher before I became a mom. Knew I wanted to become a mom, but knew that I wanted to stay at home. Um, the man I married cannot support us being one income family, so I opened up a child daycare. I agreed that I didn't want my child in the zero to three ages because of what I knew about child development being in like um, a, a center, like a big center. Um, and I tried to avoid opening for as long as I could. And then I opened um, when he was two. He's two and a half now. And I need some advice about how hard it seems like it's been on him sharing me with other kids. So right now we've had um, a baby and I didn't think I wanted to take babies just because of everything you guys are saying. Like, honestly, I thought if I took a baby, I'd have to carry the baby. It'd be someone else's, you know, like, how do you take a baby and they're not nursed and all this stuff. But the the family of the baby is just the most precious and amazing people that, like, I just feel so privileged to take care of their baby. But anyways, I have, you know, he and my son loves their baby so much, but I just feel like it's so hard on him to see me um, giving any attention to anyone else his age. 
like he's kind of okay with the baby, me giving attention to all the baby. And I do have to give a lot of attention to the baby, of course. But he's having a lot of hard time with me giving any attention to other kids like his age. Mm, great question, and Nicole. he's kind of running around. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, great question. Thank you for your question. And thank you for that sacrifice. I think a lot of women are in that same position of trying to navigate, okay, here, I want to be a stay-at-home mom, but one com- income isn't necessarily practical. So how can I make this happen? You're making it happen, but there's a lot of give and take. And so here's Erica Komazar. Erica, we'd love your candid insights and guidance on how to navigate this. Well, unfortunately, things are not perfect in life. And as you say, sometimes we do have to make sacrifices and we have to work and, and you know, we have to sometimes be away from our babies. And, and the idea is to, as much as possible, repair um, any of, the, uh, any of the, the time you are away from your baby and, and really help him to process his feelings. I mean, that's what mothers do best anyway, is they help children to regulate and process feelings. And so that means rather than assume he's okay, and it doesn't sound like you do assume he's okay, it actually sounds like you sensitively see that he's not always okay with you caring for these other babies, um, to talk to him about it and elicit his feelings about it and let him express whatever feelings he has, including I hate that baby and I wish that baby would die and I wish that baby would go away and I never want to see that baby. In other words, let let there be an open door policy about feelings expressed that he doesn't have to like that baby uh that he doesn't have to like any sibling that you is this is he your only child and then you have this baby you care for or do you have other do you have other does he have any siblings or is this like a sibling relationship with this baby um would be what i would want to know is nicole, nicole we'd love to hear from you yep can you hear me okay? Yes, yeah. yes. How many kids do you have? Okay. Yeah, so there are um, three siblings with him right now. And so okay. the one he has the biggest problems with, are the ones he has the biggest problems with are the two-year-old twins um, who aren't verbal yeah. yet. And he's very verbal. So he kind of runs around and follows the four-year-old and wants to play with the four-year-old. But, like, if any of the two-year-olds touch his toys or even just try to play with the little baby, who's another family's baby. So we're, yeah. we're five, so I'm watching five of them. Yeah. He just yeah, seems so- like anyone who his toys, you know, he wants to push yeah. them down the stairs. That's how angry he is. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and you can't blame him. So I think the idea is to, as much as possible, talk to him about his feelings and tell him that it's okay to feel whatever he's feeling. And if he can't express how he's feeling, help him to put his feelings into words. You know, I can see that you're really upset that this baby is here and you feel like this baby is replacing you. All the things that you you feel you shouldn't say, say. That's what I'll say to you. Meaning all of the feelings that you identify as being a challenge for him, put them into words and help him to put them into words. And that's the beginning of repair. And repair is a very important part of being able to move forward when in, in imperfect situations. And it's interesting you're bringing this up because I'm in that same phase. I have, you know, a little bit more than a two-year-old and my two girls are two years apart and I have a 10-week-old. And there are moments where I'll just look at my two-year-old and I'll say, you don't like your sister right now very much. And she said, yeah, put her away. She'll tell me to go put her away. Mm-hmm. And her other thing that she say, she'll say, mama, 
I need you. I need that's you. Right. And she right. she really communicates that. And that's yeah. a really big kind of red flag for me of, okay, maybe I've not done enough to meet her needs right now. Or, hey, right. two need me at once. What can I do? And I'm finding more and more, just like what you talk about in your book, you know, getting down on the ground and being there. I might have two children or there might be more than two children. But I'm wondering if something that could be helpful for Nicole could be that in the middle of her daycare day, even if there's so much to do, just sitting on the floor and engaging the kids but really making that solid eye contact and verbal engagement and touch with her with her two-year-old son during that time as well could be helpful throughout the day mm-hmm, mm-hmm. children have to learn to wait but sometimes they can't wait and I think are projecting onto them as adults projecting that they can wait um, for longer periods of time than they actually can wait I think is a mistake so as you say not overestimating their ability to wait you're listening to Trending with Tim Ray here on Relevant Radio. That's Erica Komazar. We have another question before we get to the important role of fathers. Uh, Candy's on the line. Candy, what's your question about sleep training for Erica today? Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call, and I'm happy that I was listening to Relevant Radio today. I would like to please ask about sleep training. I'm working from home. I have a six, I have a four-year-old, and I have an upcoming uh, baby in August. And so Mm -hmm. last time I was uh, listening to Trending with Timur and she was talking about sleep training. I didn't do it with my first two, but I think I have to do it with this one, Um, with Alfonso, because he's going to be born August 1st, well, God willing. So I wanted to see what you think about sleep training, if I should do it and if I should just brave it out, how do I do it? I mean, if if you if you think it 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 would work best for me working for a moment plus being a mother and being a wife and to these three children. Mm. How old is the child that you're talking about sleep training? Um, he not not yet. <laughs> He's oh. going to be born in August. Okay, so I don't recommend sleep training under the age of six months at all. Um, and okay. for neuro, for neurological reasons, it's actually damaging to, okay. to infants, very, very fragile brains. When they cry, they absolutely need you. They're not crying to annoy you. They're not crying to, uh, it's not a discipline issue. It's, um, you don't need to discipline a very young baby. It is actual desperation. It's fear and desperation. So imagine this baby's just come out of your womb. It is incredibly fragile, incredibly vulnerable, incredibly fearful. Um, and the only thing that stands between that's that abyss of fear. And um, I, I mean, in, as psychoanalysts, we talk about fears of annihilation. The thing that stands between you and death is your mother. And so the idea that people sleep train babies under the age of six months appalls me. And actually I have a, um, I have a video on YouTube that you can watch that has a lot of the research on um, why you should not sleep train a baby under the age of six months. And even at six months, if you have a very sensitive baby, you have to be very careful about it in not letting them, quote unquote, cry it out intensely. Because again, that can do incredible damage to that right brain. You have to do it subtly. You have to do it in a nuanced way. And there are ways to do it after six months, but never before six months. 
And Erica, I'll ask a follow-up because my mindset has changed a lot with regard to the whole sleep point training topic. I remember some years ago, um, I had a friend who sleep trained her child. And I mean, whether that baby slept or not, that baby was forced to stay in a crib for X so much time and then was only allowed to be up for X so many minutes. And I was shocked by it, about how detached it was. But then, you know, I saw these sleep training programs and I've kind of tried to make them my own. I know one I've talked about before has been taking care of babies. She has a lot of like steps for how to soothe, but there is, I think, a lot to be learned and said with what you're saying about understanding the system of the baby crying. And what I've learned is the more calories the baby gets in during the day and the more I have her close to me, the more she eats so that she can sleep better at night. Um, but what I learned was what you're discussing. I'd love for you to break it down for a moment. What happens when the baby cries, the baby starts to scream, and then the baby shuts down as a survival instinct so that uh, the baby doesn't become prey for other things and animals and people, uh, such as when we lived in a primitive society. Can you explain that? Well, there's a there's a tiny little part of the brain called the amygdala. It's very deep in the brain. It's very old. It's the shape of an almond. Um, and it's the stress-regulating part of our brain. And it's supposed to remain incredibly dormant. Uh, sort of, I guess the term in our culture is it's supposed to stay offline for the first year. And that means that babies are not meant to cry very much in the first uh, in the first year, uh, meaning the crying is meant to be kept to a minimum. And in fact, this woman Judy Mesman, who I told you went around the she went around the world and looked at did research on mothers and infants, and she basically found that only babies in the Western world, uh, America, Europe, cry uh, as much because other babies in other cultures don't cry like that. They they sleep in the bed with their parents in the first few months. They, mm -hmm. They're on their mother's bodies. Um, you know, they sleep in rooms with their parents even after three months. And so uh, those babies were protected from stress. We in our culture have no empathy for babies. We literally see them as objects where we don't understand that when we force them uh, into these what we call defensive independent situations. We force on them defenses, as you said, uh, that they should not naturally have at that stage. So when a baby cries and cries and cries, uh, first cries, then cries louder, then screams, and then goes silent, what's happened is that baby has an internal dialogue that my mother is not going to meet my needs. I am alone in this world and I have no one to depend upon but myself. And so you've now created not trust, not attachment security, but a false sense of security based on what we call defensive independence. And that creates a very fragile psyche. That's very, I think, um, challenging in our current culture to hear that we've treated babies as objects that even when maybe we are pro-baby we are pro-family that we objectify them to meet our meet our needs okay i really want to get sleep at night so i'm going to do this um, type of training that is too extreme maybe given the particular age they're in you know parenting is challenging and what you're pointing to is just the necess necessary element of us in some ways to endure that challenge, um, to allow that baby to grow and develop as he or she should. Uh, but I think in the midst of that, some parents might go, well, what about me? I'm suffering. You are. But through how we handle that suffering as adults, 
we grow and we also model the reality of suffering in a certain respect to our children, wouldn't you say? Well, I mean, the way nature made us, we are meant to adapt to our babies. They're not meant to adapt to us. So a healthy mother, when a baby is born and that baby is put in that mother's arms, a healthy mother will um, find a way to make that baby comfortable with her body, will adapt the crook of her neck so that baby is comfortable. And a less healthier, more narcissistic mother will make the baby find the comfortable spot on her. And what's happening in society is because there are so many women who are so out in the world and working and have to get up early in the morning and don't have long for maternity leave. And, you know, it's a problem with our society. It's not just a problem with parenting. It's a problem with society that we can't follow the rhythms of our babies. We are meant to be tired, but we are meant to sleep when the baby sleeps. We are meant to be awake when the baby is awake. We are not meant to, when the baby sleeps, do our emails or clean the house. Um, or run out and go to the gym. We are meant to sleep when the baby sleeps and be awake when the baby's awake. That is the way that nature made us. That's the biorhythm of having a young baby. And because we've ch switched things around so much in the last hundred years that we've tried to socially change everything, um, we are now making babies conform to us and it is doing great damage to those babies. And, and to the mothers, because a lot of the postpartum depression I see is also because we are, we are going against the grain of our instincts. Mm -hmm. And I see that in so many ways, you know, with my first daughter, I had her and then boom, my husband received a job offer that was really important for our family at the time. You know, it was a season of life we needed to take. We were completely separated from our family, our support system. And, you know, here I am with a baby and suddenly I started experiencing postpartum depression, you know, about eight to 10 weeks after having had the baby because that support of the community um, and just that mental stability of having, you know, those relationships around uh, was completely gone. And so that stability for the baby um, that I needed to provide wasn't there in the same way. And it's an uphill battle, I think, for so many women, the pressure to work, the 21st century society. I mean, this is the pro-life conversation I think we need to have with people in the midst of a culture that's really struggling with how to navigate the worth of women and the gift of children and to nourish both and to not separate the two, but to see as you speak so profoundly, Erica, in your work, that the two go hand in hand in that nourishment and value. Erica, so much to discuss here. I know we have a lot of questions and there are a lot of questions about the father's role as well, which I want to come back to. That's Erica Komazar uh, graciously staying with us here on Trending. We'll be right back in just a moment to talk about the father's important role in the family. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. We're talking about the important role that moms and dads play in the development of their children. It goes so against the 21st century culture of what we're supposed to do, how we're told we're supposed to raise our kids, that kids are resilient. Uh, fascinating conversation with my guest, Erica Komazar, clinical social worker, psychoanalyst, and parents guide experts. Her book, Being There, is so important for you to read. We'll post a link on social media. Um, I don't, I want to come and talk about the father's role, but first, there's an incredible story that we have to share real quick before we move on. Jackie's on the line from Newport, Rhode Island. Jackie, please share with us this incredible story you have to share. 
Hi, Timory. Uh, thanks. I love the show. Um, before the pandemic, I heard about an Australian couple, Christian couple, who uh, twins were born and the little girl survived and the little boy uh, w- uh, didn't survive. And the doctor came in, pronounced him dead, came in and told the mother. And, and she said, bring me the baby. And she told her husband, remove your shirt and climb into this bed with me. We're going to hold our son. So they, 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 they took the baby skin to skin contact on her chest, hugging, and the baby started moving and breathing and is four years old today. And the doctors had no explanation. Praise God. The power of human touch. Oh my goodness, that story is incredible. And I've seen, I've actually heard stories just like this where skin to skin contact has revived a child who is deceased even hours after. Uh, it, it's absolutely incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Speaks to the power and importance of mothers and fathers in taking that time um, to nourish our children. Erica, I want to talk about the important role that fathers play. You know, the story actually brought in the importance of fathers. You know, dads matter too. And dads even engage their kids in such different ways. Um, What is the important role of fathers and how does that differ from a mom? Well, mothers and fathers are both incredibly important to children, but they do serve different roles and their nurturing behaviors are tied to hormones. So although mothers and fathers both produce oxytocin, that that neurotransmitter, that love hormone, it has a different impact on mother's behavior than father's behavior. So for mothers, high levels of oxytocin make makes mothers more sensitive, empathic, uh, more more affectionate, more able to tune into a baby's distress. And high levels of oxytocin in fathers makes fathers more playfully, tactily stimulating, throwing the baby up in the air, tickling the baby, running around, wrestling with the baby, um, swinging the baby around. That's sort of what fathers do with their oxytocin. And fathers have more of a hormone called vasopressin. Mothers also have it, but fathers have more. It's what we call the protective aggressive hormone. So there was some research done in England um, where mothers and fathers uh, were asleep at night and the baby cried and the mother always woke up to the first sign of the baby's cries, but the father slept through the baby's cries. But the fathers woke to the sound of rustling, rustling leaves outside the window, whereas the mother slept through that. So fathers are more programmed to protect against predators. It's sort of an evolutionary way in which fathers are programmed to protect their young. Uh, and mothers are programmed to be sensitive, empathic nurturers and tune into distress. So they play very different roles. Um, when fathers are absent in babies' lives, babies don't learn how to regulate uh, aggression in particular. So some of the emotions that mothers are very good at regulating are distress, sadness, fear, uh, even excitement, whereas fathers are much better at regulating aggression uh, than mothers. And so when fathers are not present, particularly in little boys' lives, they find that little boys, toddlers and above, are more aggressive in school and at home. Mm, fascinating, fascinating. And so, and, the, and, and, and that would also that would also mean when fathers are are part of a family but work hard and are not present enough physically for that child. So mm-hmm. sometimes parents will come to me and say, "My child's been diagnosed with a behavioral problem or aggression in school." And the first thing I say is, "How much time does that father spend with that baby?" 
Mm. And, you know, it's interesting you bring this up because it's always fascinating to see the mom-dad dynamic with little kids. My, my daughter's 10 months old, and just the way my husband plays with my daughter is so much more aggressive. You know, even the way he'll come up and make a really loud noise and just startle the girl. I mean, the poor thing. Uh, she had hiccups yesterday, and it was a simple sound, but it startled her. But she's totally engaged and interested still. And, you know, I think sometimes, especially for moms, they want to, like, scale back the engagement that fathers have with their children. But they're offering something so different that we do not offer. Uh, and it teaches so many things with regard to physical boundaries, among many other things later on in life, like you said, with the aggression as well. Well, it helps with separation, too. So, you know, mothers are the love objects of attachment and fathers are the love objects of separation. So when it's time to separate, fathers are very seductive in a good way. Come on, leave mommy. It's, it's fun over here. Let's go in the pool. Let's go on the swing set. And, and so that kind of beckoning away from the mother at a certain point helps with separation. So the research also shows that um, single mothers by choice, mothers who have babies without fathers, um, often those babies have trouble separating. Mm, fascinating. So one of the things I know a lot of the research discusses with regard to the role of fathers is rough and tumble play. And I know you're referring to a lot of that. Um, can you talk about rough and tumble play and the significance of the development of the brain for the child? Well, rough and tumble play is just to say playful tactile stimulation. It basically builds sort of resilience at a certain age, not with infants. I mean, you don't want to rough and tumble with infants. And so some mothers kind of have to set boundaries with fathers because they think they're three-month-old, that they're throwing up in the air like a, uh, a football is, is like <laughs> able to do that. And, and that's terrifying to a baby. So there are boundaries to it. But the idea is, you know, the tickling and the and the playful wrestling it's all part of again managing aggression but it's also part of learning resilience and separation it's sort of um, building your ability to tolerate a little bit of discomfort and pain and um, and and so fathers do serve a very important role um, but they're it's not the same as mothers and I think that's really important because I think there's a lot of gender neutrality going on where it doesn't matter but it in fact it does matter mm -hmm. and what we're discussing is that here's the mom but here are the neat things that dad offers that are different from the mom that are important like you said and critical in critical yeah, critical so one of the things that fascinates me is the difference between, I remember when we, um, my family, my family of four, and my brother was the first boy. He was number three. And he made all these sounds that were so different from the rest of us girls. And then, you know, having a child now, it's fascinating because my husband makes a lot of loud and odd sounds to the baby. What's the role of those different types of sounds that the father brings to the children? Well, again, it's exciting. Fathers are playful and exciting and stimulating in a completely different way. And even a little scary. You know, there's something about, you know, but, but in a, in a, not, in a, not in a way that overwhelms the baby, but there's something very kind of stimulating about dads. Um, and so at, at some point, mothers often feel threatened because babies who are over three, you know, toddlers, will be drawn to their fathers because they're so you know, the play and the stimulation and, as you say, the sounds and the noises and the physical activity, it's, it's all very stimulating um, and, and very important. Fascinating. Thank you so much for being with us today, Erica. It truly You're is so welcome. 
it's so intriguing to see the work you're doing because you're answering, I think, some of the challenges in the culture from the aggression in little boys, from the psychological stymieing of children with depression and anxiety today that parents matter. Moms are fundamental. Fathers are playing that backup role. In um, kind of final kind of comment here to that effect, if you were to say one thing to a mom who's struggling, you know, being pulled in multiple directions with the world, what would you say to her? I would say that life is really, really long. We'll live very long lives, hopefully as long as Moses with all of the medical advances. <laughs> and and we can do everything in life. We just can't do everything at the same time. So if you have any choices at all to prioritize your children, even if it is, even if you have to work, prioritizing can mean spending your free time with your child and not doing other things, coming home early. Um, you will never get that time back, and um, and more is more in those first first three years. That's Erica Komazar. Her book is called Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. We'll post a link on social media. You can find her online at ericacomazar.com. That's E-R-I-C-A-K-O-M-I-S-A-R.com. Thank you again, Erica. Your work is so important. Thank you for being a voice for us mothers, for children, for dads in our culture, and upholding the family, which is what we speak about so often as Catholics, remembering that our primary responsibility as married couples is to the procreation and education of our children. That means to have children and actually follow the God-given and ordained plan for children with regard to how our biological chemistry interacts with our children and the significance of that need for presence and nurturing. So thanks for being with us. Coming up next is the Family Rosary Across America here on Relevant Radio. This is Tim Ray from Trending with Tim Ray. Wednesday, we're getting ready for St. Patrick's Day. My expert guest will join me discussing the historical story of the man and saint known as St. Patrick. Also discuss why men are being pushed away from the church, as many men claim they feel and think is happening, and get your thoughts on the topic of men in the church. So join me daily at 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.